Hello and welcome to Stow Talks, a podcast designed to support people going through a relationship breakdown and all the challenges this brings. I'm Matthew Taylor. And I'm Lisa Gatchell, family lawyers at Stowe Family Law. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the family court, the good, the bad and the ugly. And kicking us off is Matt. Talking about the family court is is, is kind of an interesting topic. It gets a real bad press in the press uh, from people who've been through court and to a degree from lawyers. And I think some of that's deserved, but I don't necessarily think all of it's deserved. So I just thought it'd be an interesting discussion for us to run through really the pros and cons of the court and how to make court work well. I, I don't know what you think, Lisa, but often when people talk about court, you know, when it's new clients or, or whoever, the thought of going to court is kind of completely anathema. It's absolute dread making. Is is that what you kind of, the reaction that you get from clients when you when you raise the prospect of court? Yeah, I think it's difficult, particularly when you're talking to them in a first appointment, because on the one hand, you're saying, you know, we talk about cost estimates and, you know, the cost would increase if you go to court, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, when we're giving advice, it tends to be on the back of these are the decisions that a judge is likely to make. So on the one hand, we're saying, oh, no, we, you know, we don't want to talk about court. And on the other hand, we are very much talking about court with them. Um, and I think an experience of court can really depend on what area of the country you're in as well. Down south at the moment. I have a very different experience where I am issue, when, I, when I'm issuing proceedings in my local court to, compared to when I'm dealing with proceedings that are in London. And that can have completely different results as to how I run that case, how I advise my clients. So, and I'm, you know, I'm in the South, you're in the North, and I'm sure there's, there's very different ways of dealing yeah. with it between us. Absolutely. The backlogs is a, b- a big issue. And I think the backlogs is something that has caused certain senior members of the judiciary, you know, fam- very senior family lawyers to all sort of take the turn at speaking out against court, whether it's the president of the family division saying that 20% of cases involving children shouldn't be in court, whether it's senior financial judges criticising costs of financial remedy proceedings, or, you know, other judges saying that you know, proceedings shouldn't be in court and you shouldn't bring unnecessary applications. These are all things that have come about recently. I think each of those arguments entirely has a point, and I'm not for a second suggesting that all cases should go to court. And you know, probably about what ten percent of my cases maybe are in court. Are you, would you say yours is a sort of similar similar ratio? Yeah, definitely. And I, you know, we settle far more cases than we litigate. Um, and I think when you talk about the press, unfortunately, the cases that get the press are the ones that are in court. And the assumption when I talk to clients and even friends and family is that I spend all of my time in court buildings. And I, I don't. That's a complete misrepresentation of what we do. Yeah. And and the ones that get the press are the extreme cases. They're the ones where people have spent millions on legal fees. And of course, that's ridiculous. And they are the ones where fairly minor issues end up in final hearings, which ideally doesn't happen. But I think around that, a narrative has kind of been created, which says that settling things out of court equals good and going to court equals bad. And I think we probably do a bit of disservice to clients when we when we adopt that approach, because ADR, alternative dispute resolution, so mediation, arbitration, negotiations through solicitors, hybrid mediation, private FDRs, all these all these things are great. All these ways of settling things outside court are great and can be brilliant in certain cases, but not every case is suitable for them. Not every spouse will agree to participate. If there's been domestic abuse, mediation is 99 times out of 100 not suitable, in my view. Where there is where people have been to mediation and they're unable to reach an agreement on a certain issue, you need an independent adjudicator. 
and it may be that some judges, some commentators, whoever it be, think that the reasons that you know those those parents have ended up in court because they can't agree something for their child, they may appear trivial, but to the child they're not trivial, and to the parents they're not trivial. And I think there's a bit of a narrative grown around the family court, which is it's an entirely negative thing. And I don't really think that's that's true. I mean, do you think I'm, I'm fair in saying that, Lisa? Or I think it is definitely necessary in some cases. And I would say, you know, as, as we said, vast majority of cases that we deal with don't go to court. So, you know, there are there are places for alternative dispute resolutions, list of negotiations, mediation, etc., and that works in a lot of cases. And we would absolutely recommend that to people first. But you will also have those cases where somebody is taking a really inappropriate stance. They are burying their head in the sand and you would be doing your client a disservice. If you've got one party that's refusing to move the goalposts or come in to negotiate at all, then your options in those circumstances are to agree with their completely unreasonable proposal. Um, or make an application to court to try and get a fairer result. And that's the intention behind that. It's not to litigate for the fun of it. It's not to increase costs for the fun of it. It's to get a fair result. Absolutely. And I think what a lot of people also don't appreciate is the vast majority of cases that go to court settle. Very, very few cases go to a final hearing. So about 10% of my cases over the course of the year might end up at court at least 90, 95% of those will settle without going to a final hearing. Very, very few final hearings. So even when you're in court, the ADR approach of try and get things settled, try and come to an agreement that works for you, is always pushed by the court. If it's a finances case, you have an FDR, financial dispute resolution hearing, where a judge will say, here's a rough indication, go and settle the case. And the judge can't make orders then, given final outcome to the case. Either the party settle it goes to a final hearing. And that's a hugely effective model. In children proceedings, you have a dispute resolution appointment where you have a similar sort of thing. You get a steer from the judge. What's the likely outcome? And then the parties tend to settle. So I think that's something that, as a profession, we could do a bit more of because I have those conversations with clients. And there's an assumption that, okay, I'm going to court. When's my final hearing? You say, whoa, 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 hang on, hang on. We're a long way away from that. And we still want to try and settle. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it is really tough, isn't it, when we're advising clients about court? And I think the, the difficulty is, is that the court system is nowhere near perfect. And I don't think any of us can sit here and say that it is. It's a necessary evil in some circumstances in order to, to get that fair result, as I say, where you've got a party that's not budging on their position at all and it's a completely unreasonable position or you've got somebody who's burying their head in the sand and just isn't providing documentation, for example. You know, you can't settle a financial case if one party's not going to give you any of the financial information. But, I mean, the system needs to do better. And I think one of the biggest problems that I see at the moment is just the delay, um, particularly where I am. It can take, you can issue your application and it can take months before you even get notice that your application's been issued. You know, you can have a hearing and wait months and months before you get your next hearing date, which will then be months and months in advance of that so I think that, and, and that's where the pressure comes then isn't it to push people towards the alternative dispute resolution hearing because the the system isn't working in the way that it should be at the moment but that doesn't mean that the system shouldn't be there or isn't needed for some people exactly and I think the the impetus and, and the continued directions whether it, whether it's from government whether it's from within the uh, family law community that encourages ADR above everything else in almost every case 
it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because if people get driven away from the court, and particularly people with money get driven away from the court because you are paying for a private FDR, you're funding it yourself. You're paying for arbitration, you're funding it yourself. You are, it's the equivalent of opting out of the NHS to go with food benefits. So it's only available to certain numbers of people and certain wealth. That reduces the kind of necessity on the powers that be to do things to change it. And you end up creating a two-tier legal system, which is fundamentally going to fail to serve people who it really needs to serve. You know, this was started with the removal of legal aid, and that's caused huge, huge problems and left vast numbers of people without legal advice and in great difficulties because they can't be funded. And I have this concern that as more people are pushed away from the legal system, then there's less impetus on changing the legal system to deal with those issues that you you raise, Lisa. But I think also that, again, going back to my, my sort of theory, which is there is a belief out there, um, which is ADR good, court bad, presupposes that court is always a wholly negative experience. And I've had any number of ADR cases, which, you know, you might reach an agreement, but it's been pretty inflammatory and stuff has been said that shouldn't have been said. And I've had court proceedings where you can be really pleasant to each other uh, and really work well with the other side. Lisa, what's your top tips on making the court process as, I'm not going to say pleasant because I don't really think any of this is terribly pleasant, but what's the best way to do court well? I think a lot of it comes down to attitude, doesn't it? The attitude of the parties going into it. Again, if you, if you are going into it with a hard line of, this is what's going to happen, this is what I'm prepared to agree and I'm not moving on anything, then court is going to be difficult for you and you're probably going to be one of those cases that's going to end up all the way at the final hearing. So you always have to have a degree of willing to compromise and being open-minded to a certain extent. And it's the same, you know, whether we're looking at court proceedings or ADR, it's providing the information that's needed to be able to assist. It's open communication it's being prepared to compromise. It's making sure that you file documents on time, um, making sure that you watch the language in communication. Um, you know, we talk unfortunately particularly about you know parties in their text messages to one another, but also lawyers sometimes in their letters to one another. <laughs> you know, inflammatory language is not going to help. Um, and as always, it doesn't do us any good to, to jump in the ring for our clients. You know, we need to be the ones diffusing the situation and trying to, to keep it focused. I, I so, couldn't yeah. agree more. And I think what you also talked about in terms of cooperating with the other side, it's an adversarial system. It is one party against another party. And, and that sort of implies some f- sort of, you know, fight, some sort of aggression. But actually, the most effective cases, go back to what we said before, it's still encouraging settlement. It's still about compromise, like you just mentioned the best cases where you cooperate with the other side and they might say you need to file this evidence and you know you could be awkward and say no i'm not going to because you want it therefore i'm not going to do it and make your application to the judge but actually in a lot of cases you're better saying well say to your client i advise my client i think the judge will probably want this information let's do it we can make our arguments about why it should or shouldn't be taken into account you can still run your case hard fight for your client put the best case forward and see what result you can achieve for them but you don't have to descend into inflammatory behavior yeah and it is that cost benefit you were just talking about the cost benefit analysis as well and the the, some of the cases that i find the most difficult are where the parties are too scared to make an application to court so we have months and months and months of correspondence going backwards and forwards backwards and forwards backwards and forwards with no real progress being made but they're so frightened of making that application to court that they've racked up thousands of pounds worth of worth of costs and actually no progress has been made yeah and that can be completely 
destructive. And then they end up in court. And then they're told, well, you really should have settled this outside of court. Well, I mean, they've tried as hard as they can. You can't force people to agree. You know, mediation is great. A big fan. And there's some brilliant mediators I work with. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not right for every case. I'm not saying court's right for every case either. But I think that what people need to be empowered with the knowledge that going to court doesn't have to mean trying to destroy each other. It is not some Dickensian battle um, to try and take four years and run up millions of pounds in costs. You can do it. Just sometimes you need someone to tell you what the answer is. Sometimes things are complicated or sometimes people just can't agree. At that point, it's absolutely right and reasonable to get someone, a judge, with experience, with knowledge, to tell you what the answer should be. But you can do that in a positive way, I think. So what about you then? So what would your you know, top tips be? I mean, you've kind of stolen all mine. Yeah, <laughs> uh, my top tip would be going to speak to Lisa. It's, it's cooperation, <laughs> I think, is a real key thing. I think that's the key thing that gets lost. I think we all know, and not, not everyone does it, but the inflammatory language absolutely doesn't help. That's something that really everyone should know, and it's too easy to get drawn into. If it doesn't progress your case with your client, don't do it. It's cooperating, it's working with the other side, it's picking up the phone. You know, this is a message to lawyers less than, than people going through proceedings. It's work with your other side, you know, be nice to them, work with your fellow lawyer, send them an email. Don't bash out these emails which say, Dear sirs, we are instructed that, blah, blah, blah. Ping an email. Hi Lisa, we're coming up to doing an exchange of disclosure. I've got mine ready. Are you already? I represent Sue, you represent Bob. Let's just humanize it a bit. Um, there's too much in family law where we forget that we're dealing with real people and we are theoretically real people ourselves and should be able to act like it. And I think if you can bring a more human side to what is a very process-driven, intensely emotional and stressful thing, I think that goes a long way. And I had a fairly recent case against someone, you know, I'm based up in Liverpool and it was quite, a, you know, initially quite a, an adversarial case. There were all sorts of issues between the husband and the wife. And we went to court and we calmed it down and we exchanged lovely emails and we were cooperative and we fought for our client and they put their side across and I put my side across, but we were always pleasant. And we reached a really good settlement on a long negotiation day at FDR, a settlement which worked for both of them, which the judge was happy to endorse. And I pinged them a message afterwards to say, thanks very much. You know, it's a pleasure to work with the case. And when you get those cases, I'm sure you've had them as well. You just think, well, you know, the clients thank you for it. They'd like, you know what, you took out the heat of this and we got a really good outcome. And I actually don't think we would have been able to do that without having the structure of court saying, no, you have to do your financial disclosure now. We've got a hearing now. Be sensible, because if you're not sensible, this judge is going to tell you that you're not being sensible. So that can happen. And those are stories that don't get told very often, I think. Um, you just hear the, the horror stories from court. And there are horror stories from court. Absolutely. I'm not pretending for a second that there aren't. I'm not pretending that court is perfect. But I don't think it's a case that it's all bad either. I certainly find that arbitration is is excellent down by us um, and we use it a fair amount but you know you've quite rightly pointed out and it and it gives um, as you say arbitration is private court proceedings so it gives that that element without having to make you know be within the court system if you like but you know you're quite right the problem with that is that it costs money and so the vast majority of people can't necessarily afford to add that onto what is already a hefty legal bill which is a shame really yeah there's, there's a, yeah there's a fundamental you know, point of principle about the outsourcing of the state's obligations to provide a functional justice system to its people. You know, it might not like the fact that people have to settle their disputes and consider that an argument about, you know, the number of nights that a child spends with the parent is 
in the grand scheme of thing important from a global perspective it's not necessarily a safeguarding issue there might not necessarily be any welfare concerns that issue couldn't be any more important to that child and those parents and the to treat the going to court as a negative or as a failure or something to be criticized for to reach that decision i don't i just don't see it as being helpful for anyone what reforms would you bring in Oh, my word, there's a question. I'm going to have my magic wand. I'm going to wave it around and you can magically change the court system. Oh what goodness. would you change? I mean, it's it's quite hard for me to think of something immediately that doesn't require a lot of money because fundamentally a lot of the problem is the lack of legal aid, um, the lack of judicial resourcing um, and the delays that you've, you've talked about. From a wider kind of reform perspective, I'd like to see rights for cohabitants. I'd like to see... Uh, stuff being done to protect people in that area but I think that generally I mean this kind of probably sounds like a controversial view and and it's weird that it does I think generally most stuff that the family court does in my line of work and I you know it's private proceedings so it's private children it's not stuff where it's local authority working care work I can't speak to that Um, it's about disputes between parents and disputes between husbands wives um, about finances I think generally the process save for the 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 backlog works pretty well and there are tweaks there have been recent tweaks to finance process about making it more streamlined about getting the evidence up first it's kind of front-loaded the system a little bit so your costs are a bit heavier at the start but with those coming into effect things like providing mortgage capacities early or all that sort of thing i think that's really helped Uh, uh, i'm a big fan of when you can get it early neutral evaluation um so if you're asking the court to give an opinion on what is likely to happen at a final hearing and you know children proceedings that can be really useful but i think i don't have any magic silver bullet um it's more a wish for a magic money tree and i think that's going to be very 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 difficult to achieve what about you what would you what would you do to change the court system yeah i mean i don't have anything that's free unfortunately because you know that that would be amazing wouldn't it um i think a lot of the issues with clients that potentially get to court come down to emotional, particularly perhaps that they are hurt, upset by their ex-partner, can't see the wood for the trees, etc. So I do want, I think some, you know, in some circumstances where I've dealt with really good mediators and arbitrators, there is that element of therapy that sometimes comes into it. So we have a divorce coach or somebody that can do some work one-on-one with each party and also with them together so that they can almost put to bed some of those emotional issues that may well be getting in the way of how they communicate with the other party, deal with the other party, focus on the proceedings. And I do wonder whether there could be an element of that inbuilt within the court process. You know, I, I don't think it's going to come, but I would say that that to me would be, a, the, of the cases that I feel they're at court, Um, And often clients don't have necessarily the funds to pay for additional help on the side whilst they're going through those types of proceedings. But I think those are the types of files, actually, or cases where I think it would be invaluable and would probably get things resolved much, much sooner. I think that's a really good point. And like you, I work with divorce coaches a lot and they're invaluable. Absolutely brilliant not available to everyone. And again, it's an extra layer of cost, as you say. But I think that that comes back to the lack of that in the system could solve a problem that I think a lot of people have, which is actually what is the family court for and what is it good at and what is it bad at? And what the family court is very good at is providing a framework, is providing a list of things that people should or shouldn't do. You should spend this time with your child. 
you should pay this amount of money to your ex-wife. What it's not good at is instilling behavior change. And it's not set up to do that. It's not designed to do that. But when you have issues between parties, and this is probably more, this is more common in children proceedings when you're dealing with parents, and fundamentally the parties have different views on how the other should behave towards them or towards their child. And this can be behavior that falls a long way short of abusive behavior, which is a completely different category. The court isn't very good at doing that. And court proceedings, if done badly, can really entrench those bad behaviours, I think. If done well, you can work with them. I will quite often propose, rather than go to court, or at the same time as going to court, why don't you go to family therapy? Now, it's often the case that if my client proposes it, the other side are going to reject it because my client has proposed it. You know, that's the, that's the way it goes in the nature of the beast. That's why the therapy is needed. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think anything that could be done to do the softer side of things, and obviously... This is what we do a lot of through Stowe Talks and what, you know, Stowe as a firm really tries to push is the holistic side to family law. You know, the legal element is really only one part of it. So I think anything that can be done to to help that and help people deal with the emotional trauma of divorce and trying to move together to work together in the future, if you're co-parenting, would be hugely important. I'm finding it's quite a big thing in relation to divorce proceedings as well at the moment, particularly now that we have the no-fault divorce, which is brilliant. Don't get me wrong, I've got absolutely no complaints as far as that's concerned. I think it was well needed, came in at the right time. But for a, for a client that feels particularly hurt, perhaps there's been adultery or there has been unreasonable behaviour, they now don't have an outlet within the main divorce suit to feel like they have been heard as to how they've been treated and so often I'm finding at the moment that's feeding into my financial cases. So it's like, well, he or she behaved in this way and therefore this is, you know, this is what should happen. And that's not what we do within the financial proceedings. And that can be really difficult for clients and then becomes a barrier to them compromising, coming to the negotiating table, reaching a settlement. And yeah, if we, if we could put something in place to help them kind of move past that, um, to a certain extent, it would help them, it would help the other side, it would help them reach an agreement, it would either negate the need for court proceedings or make court proceedings much more beneficial for both of them. It is tricky. I mean, there, there are other issues I think the family court needs to improve on. In terms, it's still not there on the treatment of abuse victims. There have been recent improvements of the stopping of cross-examination by a perpetrator, alleged perpetrator to alleged victim is a big step, although query how that is actually going to work in practice but there are still problems with the lack of regulated experts in terms of the way that the judiciary is trained on domestic abuse you still see judgments every now and again where very outmoded definitions of abuse are and i think there's also something that probably goes back to what uh, what i earlier said and touches on what you were just talking about lisa is sometimes is it's the stuff that the court doesn't know about that is impacting the parties the court isn't going to know about the fact that you know, a husband is upset because the wife had an affair. Because we're not going to raise it in court. It's not a consideration for the judge. It doesn't not mean it's not a very valid consideration for the husband and it might be a blocker to settlement. Similarly, when we're dealing with children cases, there are certain cases in which you raise domestic abuse. But the family procedure rules say that this should only be raised when it's something that would affect the nature of the child arrangements order that would be made. So if you have a case, and this happens not uncommonly, where you have a mum who says, you know, 
dad is threatening to take us to court. He's been seeing the kids for this long. You know, we've been separated for two years. He's seen the kids once a week and now wants more time. And he wants me to kind of drop them off at his house or, or whatever it may be. And then your client says, well, there's a history of abuse during the relationship. That is enormously important to your client. And it's a factor that you can't ignore. Is it something with the gap in the relationship and the fact that the, the kids have been seeing their dad maybe completely oblivious to this history for that time? Is it something the court's going to take into account? In the large majority of cases, probably not. But that doesn't mean it's still not going to be an issue that prevents a settlement because there's this huge, huge kind of reservoir of emotion, of abusive behaviour, whatever it may be behind things. So when you do see a judgment, which is critical of parties framing up in court, and on the surface you think, well, yeah, you should have been able to sort that out in, in, in ADR, you don't know what it is that's prevented reaching that settlement. And I think that's a real danger behind these sort of critical think pieces on, on the family court. Mm. So I th- think that's probably about it for us on the family court and, and how it can impact your divorce and separation in children proceedings. Hopefully that's some interesting insight and we've given a bit of a peek behind the veil of what is a scary phrase of let's go to court. So um, we'll sign off for now, but do stay tuned. Check out Stowe Talks for future podcasts, future talks. But thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, you can get Stowe Talks at stowtalks.co.uk and please rate, like, share and review this podcast where you can. Speak to you soon. Oh, 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 oh,